Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the word? And I'm going to read two passages to you. As I read the second passage, see if you can glean why you're getting off easy right now, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew chapter 13. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got in a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke many things to them in parables. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word to our ears, our heart, our mind, and our spirit that we receive and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have just finished up a series just recently um, in... One of the things we said in the conclusion of that was um, the question of Jesus and understanding who he is. We're in the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews it talks about you've not come to a mountain that's terrifying like Mount Sinai, like the Jewish experience. You're coming to Mount Zion or you're coming into the presence of Christ, God in the flesh, and there's grace and the contrast between law and grace. But what we said last week is that if you don't understand this, if you don't understand the Old Testament, if you don't understand the law and, and the holiness of God, the Mount Sinai element, which is what the, totally was the Jewish experience up until Jesus Christ, then you really don't have a comprehension fully of, of the nature of God and of our relationship with Christ and the grace that's been given to us. That's not to say that we live over here. We live here. But we live through it through that lens. And so this would have been the experience of the Jewish people. They would have only known Sinai and the terror of that and and all that would have been part of that. And now suddenly God comes in the flesh. God is now approachable. He's speaking. We always wondered how would God do things. Well, now we have the opportunity to see that. And so Jesus shows up. And we find in this first passage, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, that what he does is he's teaches. He's a teacher. It's the first identity that we find with him, the central one really of his profession, if you will. He was referred to as a rabbi or a teacher. Um, But it wasn't just an educational thing. It was a, a whole life approach, and it was much deeper than what we know of as a teacher. And so he comes as a teacher, but what did he teach about then? What was the main theme? It says here that he was proclaiming the good news, which is the term for gospel, good news, of the kingdom. So his theme, his primary theme was the kingdom of God and understanding the idea of being um, not only in this kingdom, but how its values, how its ways were radically different than the kingdoms that we all know and would have known at that time. We know how the kings operated, we know how the rules and regulations, but this is something completely different. 
and it required a change in our own sense of culture and identity. Culture in any organization drives so much of what happens in that organization. It says what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. It defines oftentimes who we are. And there can be clashes between cultures, whether in business, in churches, in families. There is an interesting thing I came across with history ways back that um, it appears that the kings of Laos and Vietnam and Southeast Asia, before the colonial empires came in and put national guidelines in place and borders, that the two kings had agreed upon way back on how to tax the border areas, those gray zones between the two kingdoms. And it went like this. Those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents, they were considered Laotians for taxable purposes. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons, they were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined his or her nationality. It said each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. That's what defined them. In the same way, for those of us that call ourselves Christians, we can be part of many nationalities, and there are many nationalities represented in this room. We can have many different allegiances. But if we're followers of Christ, then what that means is we belong to a kingdom that cuts across all those lines which means whether it's a Russian believer or a Ukrainian believer, whether it's a Chinese believer, whether it's an American believer, that as believers we're part of an overall kingdom that unites us and draws us together. And that there's supposed to be different values, different expressions of how that's supposed to operate out that should have a Chinese individual stand out from its current environment or an American individual stand out from its current environment or Russian brothers and sisters that we're seeing right now who are speaking out openly against what's going on in their own government or Ukrainians in the past who have protested issues there, there's something that unites us as one culture. Years ago, I think it was back in the 70s, there was a, back in the 1900s, okay, there was a, a, a musical. How many of you ever heard of the musical Camelot? A portion of you have. The rest of you, just get a movie, okay? I mean, just check it out sometime. Now, it's a little old-fashioned for today, and it's a musical, and it's basically about King Arthur, and... Um, his, his kingdom of Camelot. I loved that musical. What you had was this really idealistic king who wanted to be a good king and he wanted his people to prosper. And the mindset of the knights of that day, the ones who had the strength to do things, their idea was that might makes right. If I defeat you in battle, then I'm the righteous one. And so if I've got the power to destroy, I'm the greater one. And, and it's important to be mightier and greater. And, and it was not about that. In, in Arthur's mind, it switches over and he has an epiphany. And he says, not, not might makes right, but might for right. That we're supposed to use the power and abilities we have to actually correct situations, to help the oppressed. And so this whole idealist idea, ideal of, of knighthood and chivalry comes into play. And it transforms the kingdom. People change in how they're operating and, and living. But because it's a human kingdom, it falls into disrepair and jealousy and bitterness and conflict and betrayal. And the story winds down. And at the end of the movie is a tragic moment where the two armies are ready to do battle with one another. And Arthur 
doesn't know what's going to come out of the day, but he knows that the kingdom's over. And he's still caught with the image of this ideal of what it was supposed to be. And he sees a young page there, and he says, you're not to fight in this battle. You are to run behind the lines. You are to live. You are to go back, and you are to tell the story of what was Camelot. Don't let anyone forget this ideal. And that's how the musical closes out with this line, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. Loved that musical. Why do I love that musical? Why do so many other people orient to that musical? Or Les Miserables or so many of these other things that call Because they call out in us a higher ideal. It tells us that somewhere this world is not right. That it's supposed to be different. That there's something out there that, that our heart and our spirit longs for that recognizes this dysfunctionality that finds it as Solzhenitsyn says, a line that runs even through our own heart. And so when Jesus comes along and he's beginning to speak about the kingdom, this longing that we all had, it resonates and all these people flock to him. There's crowds that come. And so see what happens in this next passage we just read. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and and catch why you got off easy. Went out of the house and sat by the sea and great multitudes were gathered together, great crowds, so that he got in a boat and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore and he spoke to the many things in parables. Have you tracked it so far? Okay, let me be clear. He sat. Everyone else stood for the whole service. You got off easy. I think we should do this from now on. I think that I should sit. You should all stand because that way when you fall asleep, you will fall over. But today is a day of grace. And so we let it slide for the moment. One of these days. So he sits and he's, he's teaching them. And he's teaching them. What is he teaching them? He's teaching them with parables. What's a parable? I don't know, but it sounds terrible. It's a parable. A parable in the original language means to throw alongside of. It's a story. It's, it's an analogy. It's an illustration. It's a comparison that you throw alongside a truth so that people can better grasp the truth of what's taking place. It's also a subtle way to get past our defenses. Warren Worsby, a commentator on this, says, a parable starts off as a picture that is familiar to the listeners. But as you carefully consider the picture, it becomes a mirror in which you see yourself. And many people do not like to see themselves. This explains why some of our Lord's listeners became angry when they heard his parables and even tried to kill him. But if we see ourselves as needy sinners and ask for help, if we see ourselves as needy sinners, just a quick question. How many sinners in the room today? Anybody that was near that didn't raise your hand, just smack them upside the head and, and say, you know, no, we're all sinners. That does not excuse ongoing sin. But all of us are starting at the same level. If we see ourselves as needy sinners and we ask for help, then the mirror becomes a window through which we see God and his grace. Instead of a mirror now, it's a window into his grace. To understand a parable and benefit from it demands honesty and humility on our part. And many of our Lord's hearers lacked both, he says. Parables had a way of putting the individuals right in the middle of it 
It put the responsibility fairly and squarely on the individual as they received the information. And, and you can say, because some of you are wise enough to realize that as he spoke in parables, that, that many didn't understand that. It almost seems unfair, like he's saying, yeah, I want you to get it, but I don't want you to get it. See, you're going to go to hell, and I'm going to... That was not what it was about. The reason he spoke in parables was though that those who were sensitive to the things of the kingdom could take hold of that, understand it, and have delight, and those whose heart were already hardened would not even have higher condemnation for rejecting God's word in that specific moment of time. A writer puts it this way, the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. And so the very same gospel message that humbles the honest heart and leads to repentance may also harden the heart of the dishonest listener and confirm that one in their path of disobedience. And so the way he was speaking was a way that actually was of compassion to those who were listening. So he talks in parables. That's just how he operated. He talked about the kingdom of God. That was his main theme. And so let's take a quick peek at a few of these real quick. Some of them will be very familiar to you. Going on in chapter 13, there's several. I'm not going to do them all, but let's go to chapter 13, verse 3. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And just so you know, just so you know, I was so wanting to just get handfuls of rice, and as I'm talking, just toss it out left and right here. But I have compassion upon our facilities manager and those who come and clean this building. But imagine it's coming, all right? So... As we scattered the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up, and some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Another seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still another seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Later, he breaks it down for his disciples in detail, so they are clearly understanding In verses 18 through 23, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And trouble or persecution comes because of the word. They quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone um, who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, there's nothing wrong with wealth, but, but to think that that is our security and our safety net, there's a deceitfulness about that, or that that makes us greater than someone else, chokes the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160, many times full from what was there. Understand what he's saying. The crowds gather, and this is the first thing he says to them. A whole big multitude and crowd, he gathers them. And the first thing he's basically saying, if you follow this closely, is only one in four of you are going to get what I'm talking about here today. The other three of you aren't going to get it. Uh, two of you might, but, but certain things are going to happen so it won't plant deeply in you. So there's only one in four of you that's going to catch what's going on in this conversation that I'm about to have with you. Now, this is a pretty major statement to make, and one of the things that you have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves today, is this, which one of these four are we? 
Now, I'm assuming that the stats are a little skewed here today. I'm assuming that this is majorly good soil, but not all of it. I don't know what the, the, the statement is. Only you know the condition of your own heart. But one thing you need to consider is, have things choked out the word of God in my heart and I just show up here? Am I deceived by other things in the process? Has the heat of the moment? Or am I just playing a game and I, I have nothing to do with this whatsoever, but my girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or parent decide I should be here today, whatever the case may be? Or do we have, are we that, that individual that, that, that we're drawn to Camelot? We're drawn to the ideals of the king. We're drawn to a different value system so that when Jesus speaks, our heart leaps to the moment. Which of those are we? Now, I imagine the, the disciples, the disciples are sitting here, you know, they're standing off to the side while Jesus is sitting here and teaching and doing all this, and there's this crowd, and I imagine they're sitting here going, oh, this is great. Things are going great. Look at the crowds. Look at this. This is, this is massive. Judas, what do you think? Oh, I think it's a great deal. Yeah, okay. So we're having a great crowd here. And then Jesus is throwing this one in four deal. So now they're reflecting on this. And I think part of what it was for the disciples as well to sit here and say, look at guys, it's not about crowds, it's not about numbers. We use that as a barometer of success. Now, I love the fact that today, and for those of you on live stream right now, the church is packed out. I love that. I, much, I like it better than just two or three of us sitting here staring at each other. I definitely like that. But the idea that that is an indicator of success in the sense of the Spirit, is, 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 is just erroneous. And Jesus is saying it right here. It's not just that these people saying only one in four. You can, his disciples, he's sitting here saying, the crowds really aren't it. It's those hearts that are drawn towards the kingdom. See, uh, crowds worry me. They have always worried me. Ever since I've read the Bible, they worry me. You see, we always think it's about this, but, but a crowd is one step away from a mob. And individuals can make good decisions, but mobs are stupid. And they will do horrible things. They can cause great damage in person or online. I never use or want to use numbers as a guideline of success. And now here's the reason why. Not just from this passage we read here, but, but in what we're going to talk about in a few weeks' time. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's this called the triumphal entry. Everyone is shouting his name. They're tearing down palm branches and laying them down. They're exalting all over the place. The crowd's gone crazy. And those same people, not even a week later, are saying, crucify him. Don't ever trust in crowds. That's, that's a world thing, but it's not a kingdom thing. We have to examine what our guidelines for success are. Now he goes on after talking about this and saying only a few are going to catch on to this stuff. Then he talks a little further in the verses 24 through 30. Another parable. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. This word enemy is ekthroi or ekthros. Madeline Lengel uses it in, her, in, her, in, in a couple of her different books. And uh, it means enemy. And it means the absolute, absolute opposite of love. This is a hateful, despiteful that wants to negate, X you out, destroy you. The enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy, an ekthroi did this, he replied. Someone without love. Servants asked him, do you want us to go out and go and pull them up? No. He answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What's this parable supposed to mean? 
God's planted what he is. And we have systems of government and, and structures, both in church or otherwise, that if we have people that are, are woefully sinful, violent, doing wrong, we can address those issues. Someone physically acted out in some fashion, we can address that. But there's so much that happens in the heart of man. We can't disturb, distinguish fully what's going on in the hearts of individuals. And there are individuals who may look outwardly good, but are still doing inward things that aren't that good at all, or they're evil. That's to be for the final judgment of God. We have to be careful of witch hunts that can kill a lot of good people while trying to deal with whatever's evil in the midst. That doesn't mean you can't judge sin or judge the issues. But when it gets this subtle, he's saying, let it go. Let them both go together and then understand there will be judgment. There to be burned. That's an imagery of hell. Those that are solid is to be wheat, is to be gathered into his barn. So realize there is a judgment, but much of the inner stuff has to be judged by God. Then he goes on quickly to speak about the value of the kingdom. Okay, so he's talking about our current environment and how this is going, and now he's talking about now the value, and he puts it with these two illustrations. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 13, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. A couple of ethical challenges here, okay? The guy's, you know, working around the field, and he suddenly discovers a treasure. Well, how's that work? No banks in those days, a lot of invasions, a lot of violence, and so people would often bury their stuff and then either get later killed by the invasion or maybe they died without telling someone where it was at. And so there's lots of treasure buried all over the place uh, in this world and especially in the Philistine-Palestine area that was going on here in Israel. So this guy discovers this treasure. Whoa. Now, the indicator are that he didn't move it, that he just covered up again. Jewish law is if he'd laid hands on it and moved it, he would have been required to report it to the owner of the land and say, this is basically on your property. But he's a clever guy, and so he doesn't move it. He follows the law, leaves it there, and goes away, and then comes back later and goes to the, to the guy and wants to buy the property for whatever, the, this huge high cost. Now, a couple things. The guy whose property it was, it wasn't his treasure. If it was, he'd have removed it before he sold the place. And so this, this guy knows it's not his treasure. It's, it's a random moment. He wasn't meaning to do this. He suddenly stumbles in and finds this huge treasure that now is going to transform his life. In the same way, we search, Jesus is saying, we don't search. We stumble, some of us, upon the things of God. There are those of us that are in this place now that we've come to serve God, and we weren't really even looking for it. Something smacked us upside the head, some event, some moment, some teaching, some insight, and suddenly we realize not only the kingdom of God, but the value of it to our lives, and it's changed who we are. And it's of significant value, this kingdom. He goes and repeats this with a different twist. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and he found one of great value, and he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. It's interesting. He went searching. So some people stumble across. Others of us in this room, even now, are searching for the things of God. Those who stumble across it, they find great value. But then there are those who are searching. And if we search diligently, we find this great value that is the kingdom of God. And we're willing to give everything up for it. And it's interesting that he chooses a pearl on this, not a gold nugget or a diamond. This thing is perfect already by itself. A pearl doesn't have to be melted or smelted down, nor does it need facets cut upon it so that its glory can be seen. The kingdom of God comes to us already perfect. There's nothing that we can do to improve the kingdom of God. It improves us, but we don't improve upon it. 
And he chose a pearl again, which is interesting. The pearl was incredibly valuable in this time. Again, historical context matters. Pearls were valued beyond diamonds or anything else in the ancient world. Egyptians actually worshipped pearls. And the Romans tended to do the same. They were exorbitantly expensive. Why so expensive, you ask? Thank you, okay. Thank you for asking. Because of this, the method of getting them was extremely dangerous and killed a lot of people. They were only found in two or three places in the ancient world, and it required divers to attack rocks, attach uh, rocks and weights to their body. And then they would jump over holding their breath and go down as far and then scour the ocean floor, holding the, hoping their breath held out. And then they would release the rocks and shoot back to the surface, hopefully with something in their hand or at least their life in their hands. But many people died doing this. I'm a diver. I've I've done both free diving and and, and scuba diving. And and I remember one of the funnest things I ever did was when we were one time together and and there were conch shells, you know, those shiny little shells that you hear the ocean on, but you really don't hear the ocean. It's just an illusion, okay? But they look horrible in the raw. They just look like rocks, and it's hard to distinguish them. And so we dive off the boat and free dive down and, and hold our breath and, and, and look around until we find something and, oh, that's, nope, that's just a rock. Oh, no, nope, that's something that just bit me. No, that's not good at all. And then we find over here, ah, and then you come to the surface with this thing. And then it's polished and it's clean and it looks beautiful. Pearls were of credible value at this time. The Roman emperors, to show um, their, their great wealth, would on occasion take a pearl, dissolve it in vinegar, put it into their wine and drink it in front of people. Hey, take that, Kardashians, okay? <laughs> to flaunt his wealth. This guy comes and he finds a pearl. He seeks it, and it changes his entire life and how he thinks and how he operates. Jesus is saying, look at only a few of you are going to get this. And you're going to be mixed in with people who won't get it, but will look like they get it, and we're going to leave them all alone until you all get into a certain point here. But for those who do get this, it's going to be like this incredible treasure that transforms your life. It's going to be something that's worth everything you have. It's worth everything you're willing to give for it. And then there's one, not a last one, but a last one for today that I want to share with you. And this one... Catches me probably in many ways the most. This one is not a scripture I have for you on the wall. There, I want you to listen to this and I want you to tune into it in a minute. Because after the, this treasure and everything else, Jesus says this in Matthew 20. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. But it could be better worded the parable of the generous um, owner. Matthew chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius were union wages for a good day's work, as ordained by local 405, okay? So it was good money. It was good money for a full day's work. I mean, it was really good money. Union wages, okay? Good stuff. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing. So he goes out and get these early ones, like six in the morning maybe. Later, he gets some guys at nine in the morning. You also go work in my vineyard. I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went. 
Went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon did the same thing. At about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He says, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us. No one has drawn us in. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. Now, evening came, which just for the record is about an hour past five o'clock. Six o'clock would have been wrap-up time. So these guys came in for an hour's work. The owner of the vineyard says to a foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. And then he does it very interestingly. Notice this. Beginning with the last ones hired, the ones who just got hired at 5 o'clock, and then going on to the first. Now, you could have flipped this, and there would have been no conflict or tension to the story. He purposely does it this way. So the workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came, and they each received their union wage of a denarius. So when those who were hired first saw this, they expected to receive more. That guy, for an hour's work, just got a whole denarius. I've been at this eight hours, dude. Me, you, you too. Can you imagine eight denarii is what we're going to get out of this? This is incredible. But each one of them also received a denarius, a single coin. When they received it, which they'd been agreed to get, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who retired last work only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? So the first will be last and last will be first. Okay, we look at this passage here, and for many of us, it's a very annoying passage. First question I'd ask is, who do you identify with? I'll tell you who you generally don't identify with. We usually identify with the guys at 359 or whatever else. Who we don't identify is that last guy coming in. There's very few of us that, that feel that we're particularly least deserving and overappreciated. None of us feel that. And so we're identifying with these other guys and saying, somehow we got ripped off on this deal. But here's the deal. This story isn't about the three, five, and nines. It's not about the last guy. This story isn't about you or me. This story of the kingdom is about the owner. It's revelatory about the nature of the king. And what this is saying is that this owner's generosity flows not in response to what we've done, but out of his rights and nature. It's just who he is. See, we're so used to a world and to a kingdom where we only get rewarded for what we do. If I'm a waitress, I get a tip because I was really nice, hopefully. Or if I handle this, I get a bonus at the end of the year, and it's all related to things. We can say that it's generosity, but it's really linked to our performance, and we are so driven that way that we bring that, and we think that's the way of the kingdom, and it's not. One-fourth will grasp this. A few others, whether they seek it or stumble upon it, will recognize that it's something of incredible value. They all grow up together until such time of judgment comes to clarify everything. But what this tells us more than anything else is the nature of the king, that he's generous. This word in this line is the single instant where this specific Greek word agathos gets translated as generous. Every place else in the scripture, it gets translated as good. 
Only here is it translated as generous, but it basically means good. It means inherently good, good in and of itself, goodness that doesn't ebb and flow with circumstances or mood or the wordiness of others, but good by nature. It is inherent in the character of its possessor and independent of the actions of others. The owner is agathos. The owner is good. The owner is generous. The owner is God. He is the king. And regardless of whether you've earned it or not. And those of us who have been in the kingdom for so long that we somehow think that we are superior to those who have just entered into faith, how ridiculously... We're foolish. Hopefully, we have greater maturity, but not better than ever. Quickly, to wrap up some things here for you. In Greek mythology, ancient sailors faced a lot of dangers in the sea, according to the mythology. One of the most unusual and dangerous were what were called sirens. It's probably where we get the phrase for you know, like sirens, like police sirens or other ones today. Only our sirens are mostly annoying. These sirens were mesmerizing. These were, were creatures who would sing a song that was so mesmerizing, that was so hypnotic, that it would lure sailors to their death on the shores. And there were two famous Greeks that were able to sail through these successfully. Almost everyone else died. One was Odysseus who stopped up the ears of his men with wax and then had his men tie him to the ship's mast. In this way, his men were safe and they were able to row without being distracted and he was able to hear the song because he wanted to experience it, but he was masked and tied so he couldn't break out and, 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 and hurt himself. He could hear the sweet song without any harm. The other one was legendary Orpheus. And Orpheus was the guy who was sailing with Jason and the Argonauts. He was, uh, had some musical background of his own. And as they approached the sirens during their journey and began to hear the sirens' voices drift across the water and the men started to, to get distracted and mesmerized and drawn off, which would have ultimately been to their doom, Orpheus leaps into action. And Orpheus takes out his lyre, a type of guitar, and he begins to play and sing an even more charming melody to the men than what they were hearing. Orpheus, not Odysseus, represents the success that we want in the pursuit of the kingdom and in dealing with the world around us. We can pass some tests by restricting our bodies and being tied to a mast, limiting our access to temptation sometimes by by filling our ears with wax. But in the end, the holy desires of our heart have to rise and conquer. The desire to love and follow Jesus has to be a sweeter song to us than the music of the world and of our flesh. There has to be something within us that is drawn to to Jesus' teaching. That as he would teach these things in parables and as he would talk about the kingdom, that, that, that visions of Arthur and his knights rise up or, or the powerful aspects of Les Miserables come to play and that there's a music in our soul that rises and said, this world is not how it's supposed to be. I am not how and who I am supposed to be. And this man who's speaking right now, who's sitting there as I stand this whole time, is calling something out in me. 
And with the mirror that he provides, I see my sin and my failings, but I also see the echo of greatness of what I could be if I were only to follow a king such as he. There's a song entitled, I vow to thee my country, and the first refrain is about loyalty to country, but the other refrain overrides and you realize it's just an example to get to the real core, and it says there's another country I've heard of long ago, most of most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart and her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. Her ways are ways of gentleness and all her paths are peace. Jesus was a teacher His main theme was the kingdom of God. He taught in parables, throwing things down alongside truths so that those with sensitivity would hear and those who didn't would be less condemned. Few would let the message take root. Have you? Those who did found it of immeasurable value, worthy of every sacrifice possible. Have you? The Lord of this kingdom is incredibly generous to those who don't deserve it. And it's not based on our performance. And then here's the final thing I'd say to you today. King Arthur, according to legend, dies in that battle or is wounded so badly in the battle that he's taken away by magic to a cave. And still to this day, he resides in some hidden cave underneath Britain. And the legend says that Britain's greatest hour, he will come forth to rescue them. He was just a myth. Our king's not sleeping. He's no longer in the cave. It went a long time ago. And his kingdom is rising. He's looking for those who would recognize that. Who would take that mirror and see themselves. That have ears to hear. Eyes to see. And through that mirror would see the windows of his grace and his great generosity. And would embrace that. This morning... Many of us have made that step, but some of us inevitably have happened. So before we close today, I'm going to ask if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment. Please, just give privacy to those around. I'm going to ask this. If you, this morning, are drawn not by my words, they're not my words. These are the words of Christ. If you're drawn, if something in your spirit right now is drawn to the ideals of the kingdom of God, to this king who is so generous and would grant you grace and forgiveness for your sin. And you're prepared to do that. Repent, acknowledge it, repent, embrace Christ today and his sacrifice and follow this king for the remainder of your life. If that's you this morning, then it's quickly with no one looking around. Raise your hand wherever you're at, just quickly. Anyone else quickly? Okay. One more call on the ground floor. In the balcony, just quickly. Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, anybody else? I see you. Okay. All right, let's pray together. Father, I pray right now for these dozen or so individuals, these 18, 20 individuals who raised their hands this morning 
acknowledging that you are king and their desire to follow you. And I pray, Lord, as they repent of their sin, as they acknowledge you as king, as they respond to the resonance of your Holy Spirit and your words here this morning, that they would find it worth it. That, Lord, they'd be willing to sell everything out and knowing that they may stumble and fall, but they are your person. They are in your culture. And they can pursue you and grow even more in faith. And I pray, Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, those of us who may have been in the faith and have been working in the fields for a long time, that we would not become complacent, that we would not feel in any way that we're superior or that we would not take comfort in that fact, but that we'd recognize your grace and that it's only by your grace that we got in the door. And Lord, if there's anything within us that needs to disappear, convict us of that now. Let us have a brokenness about it and then let us set it aside, Lord, and stand up to pursue you with more vigor than before. I was close to becoming a lifelong cynic at age 10. That's another story for another time. But one thing that constantly broke through that, whether I saw failings in others or hurt by the church or my own failings and errors that I'd make, everything that that you want to just fall down and let it all go, one thing that always broke through was the image of the kingdom of God. This ideal, this, 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 this kingdom, this ethos, this culture that God is breaking into this world and is wanting to transform and bring to that point that that is our future. That's our kingdom. That's where we're called to. And that's broken through so far every single time. I pray God's grace upon you. I pray that you process what we've talked about here today. Next week, (sighs) just get used to it. Uh, No. No, we're just three weeks from Easter, guys. Just three weeks. All right? The altar will be available for prayer. There'll be those up here to pray with you if you so choose. If you want to stay and linger, I'm sure some of the crowd did. Maybe some of the disciples even walked around and had a little deeper thoughts afterwards as well. Father, I thank you for this image we have that you gave us so powerfully through so many. We just scratched the surface of these parables and these stories. I thank you for that, God. I thank you that you broke into our world and that that your grace and your goodness is not based on our performance, but on just who you are, that you're a good king, one we can trust with our very lives and with our future. Guide us as we continue to pursue these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.